Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode, episode 17 of Derailed Trains of Thoughts. This is Timothy Deal, aka Jim. And this is Nick Hayden, aka Nippy Hotpants. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a story. So, there's this game, Tim, I don't know if you ever played, called Hero's Quest, the board oh, yeah. game. Uh-huh. Well, well, for a long time, I, well, there was a section of my life about uh, six years ago where we, my family played a lot of this and we all named and I, we would switch around who was in charge but we named the wizard Nippy Hot Pants we just <laughs> thought it was a ridiculous he was a ridiculous if you see if you saw a little picture I don't know we thought it was hilarious we laugh every time we say his name Nippy Hot Pants Nippy Hot Pants yep that's an awesome that's an awesome background story <laughs> Mine is kind of mundane, really. It was just a character that was based off my childhood from uh, the story project. From a story in a story project. Which was a good story. Oh, well, thank you. But uh, not as cool as Nippy Hopkins. No, not nearly. But Jim is very plain. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to make up for it next week. I've got one I've been saving for a while. I've been uh, pulling the bomb of the barrel because <laughs> I'm picking We're... names that I was shared with other people. We're, we're both very rapidly about to run out of names, but if we can just hold on for a few more episodes, then maybe we'll change it up a little bit. That's true. So, or we'll just start making stuff up. Yeah, exactly. In the meantime, let's get on to some listener feedback. Okay, so if you haven't been checking out our comments board, shame on you, because you've missed some interesting conversations. Let's go back to, well, just the last episode. Our friend Laura, a.k.a. Machorian. Who was on, what, two episodes ago? Uh-huh, when she was talking about fandom. She's uh, been following us ever since and has left some interesting comments. Uh, one was about her uh, very, from our last episode, and we talked about Choose Your Own Adventures as a kind of participatory story. She talked about how her method of doing it, where of reading Choose Your Own Adventure book when she was a kid, when she would sit in the library and do a, a first pass where she would be very honest trying to think what she would actually do, not take what was obviously the correct choice or the smarter choice. Which sometimes I, I, I used to do things like that too. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember reading... I be, remember being really fascinated with Choose Your Own Adventure books, but I don't remember hardly ever actually reading one all the way through. <laughs> Maybe I did, but I have no, I have no strong memories of it. I know sometimes I would, I mean, sometimes I, I would purposely try to choose what was the most heroic or bravest choices, mm. and then sometimes you want to choose the absolute dumbest choices that would get you killed or arrested or sent off to an alternate dimension or something. Speaking, Natasha one time had a, a, a modern, like, adult Choose Your Own Adventure book. Oh, really? She got in the. I don't think it was very good, or I don't know about good. Good might not be the right word, but it was. It was strange and kind of. Uh, I don't remember. Sometimes when they try to make something more adult, what they really mean is edgier, and darker, edgier, and, and or more uh, less less morally correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When it was all literary, which is I think is a cool thing to try, but I think it would be hard to do well. But yeah. I, I can be proved wrong. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly some ambitious people out there in the Choose Your Own Adventure communities online. Yeah, that's true. Laura also responded with an interesting comment on our discussion of originality, because we had talked with Laura earlier about fan fiction, 
She's also been thinking about converting one of her own supernatural fanfictions into an original story, which she calls, quote, filing off the serial numbers, unquote. Which not only is a very interesting phrase, I like that phrase, but I can, I can see that probably happening a lot more than not. Yeah. Not just to fanfiction when people are like, I really like fill in the blank. I'm going to write something, well, not quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> Similar enough. Well, and especially I can see in the work, the fanfiction, if you've, a lot of you know work and, and heart into it and then you're like well I can't actually make money or distribute this aside from my online thing which is nice but I can see why you'd want to dust it off and try to reformat it so that people outside of that fan community might be interested yeah, in it too I'd be really interested to see if, if she gets very far on it what, what choices she made mm-hmm. because I think that would be a, an interesting discussion yeah so good luck Laura we're, we're pulling for you there and hope that it uh, all turns out and I think we had one more comment we wanted to we wanted to talk oh, about. Oh, I was just going to, yeah, Nathan um, Nathan Marchand, about, I think, three episodes ago, when we were talking about fandom, we, we had mentioned that we didn't really want to see fan fiction of Tolkien or Lewis. Um, and he says, he seems like he remembers Lewis one time telling a, a child who had written to him to go and write her own Narnia stories. Um, and he asked what I thought about that. And I guess I thought, I can see... Children writing their own versions is different than someone trying to reinterpret Narnia in their own vision. Because I think the way kids write stories in the world they love is substantially different than how older people try to do it. And also, I think C.S. Lewis's Narnia is much looser in its mythology and in its structure than, say, Tolkien. I can I could probably be convinced of Narnia fanfiction. Tolkien fanfiction, you're going to have to be very up-to-date with the vision Tolkien had Someone could probably do it. Strange, well. well, strangely enough, I can almost see a, a little bit more of an opening for Tolkien fan fiction than maybe not with the the specific characters. I think that'd be hard to do unless you're going to talk about Aragorn's adventures as a ranger or something. But just the whole world of Middle Earth, well, there's a lot of fertile ground. There, there. There's a yeah. I mean, I can see. I can certainly see why you would want to. Yeah, but I guess because it's so such a specific sort of world, having like really enjoying Lord of the Rings, I'd rather not someone abuse the world <laughs> no no I, I completely agree there and there is a difference there between an adult trying a, a literary attempt in that and a kid just using it as an off spring point for his imagination yes yeah. you know i mean that's a lot like what kids do with their action figures you know i remember taking my luke skywalker figure and coming up with all the kinds of adventures oh, yeah. he had on tatooine before he met obi-wan kenobi so. and, and i know uh there's a you know whole muds and more and uh interactive fictions on in Tolkien world and stuff like that. I mean, people do that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's talking about participatory stories. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like every, you know, those stories have to be for everyone. Yeah. They have their place. And my personal opinion is not necessarily, is not necessarily the rule of law. <laughs> Probably, fortunately, for all people. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it should. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. <laughs> You're welcome. You'll be vice president in my world. <laughs> okay. And I think with that... We'll move to Story School? Yep, Story School is next. Okay, for this story school, this is one that we had talked about doing some time ago. We brought it up as a possibility, but we were both kind of like, uh, I'm not sure if I want to tackle that one. It's kind of a, a thorny issue for 
Christian writers and storytellers, but maybe not so much one for our non-Christian listeners. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of feedback, if any, we get from this. Hopefully we will get feedback from both sides on it. But the issue in question is magic. And magic is a big thorny issue. So personally, it's kind of the thing that sometimes I feel like myself I've already kind of dealt with, but you always meet someone else who is still kind of a, you know, it's like the weaker believer that Paul talks about. So, Tim, just so everyone's on the same page, what is the issue? Well, the issue for Christians is that in the Bible, magic arts, witchcraft, sorcery of any kind is strictly forbidden. It's a very big no-no. And so that becomes a big issue when you, in a lot of stories that involve, you know, a lot of fantasy stories that involve magic, whether it be spells, whether it be a wizard or a good witch like Wizard of Oz, or to use a very modern and um, rather infamous example, <laughs> boys who go to school particularly to become wizards and, you know, learn witchcraft. We all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Harry Potter. That's probably oh, okay. <laughs> that's probably the most visible case of controversy in the last about magic in the last ten years, but it's been ongoing. And some Christians have even questioned the use of some seemingly magical elements in the works of two of our favorite Christian authors, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, in the books of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, which which some Christians seem to love as very, as being very, you know, inspirational for their faith. And yet some others are like, but it's got magic in it. How can this be? It must be wrong. And it's interesting. I, I've had numerous discussions of this, both in college and with my wife, because she grew up, her parents were missionaries in Brazil, and there's a lot of, you know, animism and stuff in Brazil. And they were very, they didn't like her to watch anything with a wizard or witch in it, you know, Wizard of Oz, any of the Disney movies, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I remember, especially when we first getting to know each other, I'm reading Harry Potter. She's like, well, but there's magic and stuff in it. Which is an actual, ser- you know, we're not trying to downplay either side. Because it's an actual big deal. No, it's a legitimate issue. And in, in my family was, I don't want to say we straddled the fence. But, I mean, there's some series that we would come down kind of hard on and other ones that maybe not so much. I mean, we were a, kind of an anti-Harry Potter family for quite a while. But at the same time, I mean, we obviously knew that Star Wars had Eastern religion elements and stuff in it, but we kind of excused that for whatever reason. I guess that's what, when we discuss this, it seems like if you're going to be against magic, you should be against it all the way. I mean... Well, that's a bold statement, but... Well, I mean, what I mean is, I'm not sure you should say Harry Potter's wrong and then let Star Wars fly, necessarily. I mean, on, on, a, on a strictly argumentative level. Mm-hmm. Um, or like X-Men. Okay, so they have superpowers but because it's genetic. Is that different than being born a non-muggle? And, I, and these are questions that, you know, I've... Well, that, I'm not about. sure that's a good example because some Christians also dislike X-Men because it promotes evolution. Okay, and and that's consistent. I'm just I'm just talking about from a consistency point of view. Okay. okay. And I guess I my family was much more... I think we talked about that sort of stuff, but, you know, we, to us, you know, reading Harry Potter, it's, it's fancy like every other fairy tale out of England. Mm-hmm. there's magic and, you know, there's been Merlin and everything since the beginning of time. And that's how we kind of took it. And then I went to college and, you know, all these discussions. And it was, it was very fascinating. It is it is hard a hard one to come to a consistent biblical worldview on. And I know that issue is one, I mean, I became a little more amenable to my own 
thoughts on the matter. Well, after I talked to a Sunday school teacher I had at the time, about the time I was beginning college, a very learned man, very wise uh, man that I really respect his opinion, very well studied. And I asked him about the thing and he said, you know, kind of the same thing. Well, he said actually that he had sort of a foot in both camps, that he could see that in Britain, it was very much an issue of, you know, these are just elements that that appear in stories. No one's going to take them seriously and say, okay, I'm going to go out and study this stuff and become a witch. And on the other hand, he could understand why for some American people who may, that may not have been as much of an issue, you know, traditionally American stories were not up until more recently, they were not necessarily all about the, the mythology per, mm-hmm. per se of the, you know, the Greeks or the Norse or whatever. In that sense, you could sort of see it becoming a forbidden fruit. But I do think that in more recent times, we've kind of seen even that side kind of filter. I mean, Harry Potter has been around now for 10 some years, and we haven't really seen an amazing rise in the Wicca population or anything like that. And I, my, my guess is, and I don't know this for certain, that the people who's going to appeal to negatively are going to find something to feed that need. The, the dark power. The dark idea. power. The, the, you know, they're looking for something to fill a void. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, books can fill a void in all sorts of ways. Not in the fantastical magic point of view or, you know, romance novels for some people or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I remember when I took a class in, on Tolkien, um, one of the classmates was, I think she had been part of Druid religion at one point. Oh, really? And she said that first century Lord of the Rings, before she became Christian, it, was, it seemed to her very pagan. Like part of her religion, and then when she turned Christian, suddenly she could see all the Christian themes in it. Oh, that's very interesting. So I, I I do wonder whether where you stand personally has a lot to do with how these things affect you. That makes a lot of sense because one thing when I was I was kind of reading up, getting ready for this one because I knew this was going to be sort of a meteor topic. One thing that C.S. Lewis said that kind of struck out to me, I think it was in the Abolition of Man, that. In a sense, both science and technology are really about harnessing nature to man's will, in a sense. Whether it's magic or technology, it's a way of giving man more power. Whether it's, you know, being able to talk to someone, you know, half across the world. To an ancient person, what we do with telephones now might seem like magic. So I think a lot of it really is in the intentions of what you're doing with with the power. I completely agree. I remember, I think... Especially from a writing point of view. If the reason you're writing magic is because you want to vicariously enjoy the power of, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to be this powerful being with all these spells or whatever, probably shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other things in a, in a fantastic world that you can use magic to explore. And I think it's very notable that Lewis and Tolkien themselves, when they used... When there was an element of magic in it, there was they, they handled it quite differently than than a lot of people. It used to always bug me when when people who were defending Harry Potter would say, and I'm I'm not going to bash Harry Potter here, but I'm just making a point. When people who would defend Harry Potter would say, "Well, Lewis and Tolkien did the same thing." No, the way they used magic was way way different. That's true. If anything, there was always kind of they often talked about a risk of using the magic powers because like Uncle Diggory from the Magician's Nephew, who's fooling around with magic winds up bringing a great evil into this brand new world of, of Narnia when it's being created. Same, you could say the same thing. The theme happens all over the place in Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is very protect, you know, very wary of magic items like the ring. And he knows the, the corruption that power can bring. And in Silmarillion, you've got Melkor and Sauron and Theonor, who are all enchanted by the 
the promise of these magical items that ultimately brings about great ruin to destruction. So in each of these cases, magic is treated, if you're going to use it like Gandalf is charged with using it, you've got a great responsibility to it, and it's it's nothing to be taken lightly. You know, the, the word magic encompasses a lot of different things. That's very true. I mean, because there's there's fairy tale magic, which is kind of just how the world works. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you plant a magic bean, a giant beanstalk grows up. There's no, that's just kind of a rules of the, of the fantasy world, mm-hmm. as opposed to a source of power. And I think there's other, other things that aren't called magic. They're basically equivalent. You mentioned, you know, the Force in Star Wars, which is very religious and Eastern, mm-hmm. you know, X-Men, but that's evolution and genetics and, you know, blurring the whole line between science and magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, you're right, are largely the same thing. And I think you almost have to take each each case, in, you know, separately in some ways. That's true, because in some of these stories, they really are more of a function. Like, video game, like the Final Fantasy series, you're using magic, but it's, usually it's more of a, just a game mechanic than anything. I mean, it's as, it's as much as related to dark arts as, like, Mario eating a mushroom yeah. and getting bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just kind of how the world works. And sometimes it's how the world works and some interesting plot point later on. But I think in a lot of world-building fantasy, magic is like another scientific law mm-hmm. you know it's like gravity or this or that here's how magic works now sometimes i still think those probably fixate too long too much on the power of it mm-hmm. like and, some, it, and sometimes well i mean will time uses magic and it's partly a commentary on gender relationships oddly enough and also there's a lot of power involved but there's a lot of backlash and exploration of how much are you willing to go through with mm-hmm my brother's been reading, um, what's it called? Percy, <laughs> oh, my brother's been reading the Percy Jackson series. And he says, that that's hardcore paganism. I mean, if you've seen Percy Jackson the movie, or read the book, I haven't read the books, I've seen the one movie. You know, they're actually Greek gods and the descendants of the Greek gods. But I guess they actually, in the book, sacrifice to the gods and pray to them. Mm-hmm. It's probably part tongue-in-cheek and everything. I don't know, I haven't read it. But that's closer to that sort of sorcery witchcraft that's, forbidden in the Bible. Because in the Bible, when it says witchcraft and wizardry, it's largely saying getting power from another source than God. Yeah. And I think there's books where that aspect of it, that that aspect of getting it from nature or from from some other, you know, some idolatrous place is uh, more pronounced. And that is where I get a little, like, I don't know. Now, you're still talking about a secondary world. You're still talking about a, a fictional setting. But at what point does reading that, does it still have benefit to you? I mean, does the story still have a lot of benefits to you? Is it, I don't know. I haven't decided it's in a all fair, cases. It's a fair question. And it's interesting that I would say a number of homeschool families, maybe not all, but a number of them who are very conservative, who in the past, when during the whole Harry Potter controversy would have decried it, would still talk about and teach about the Greek mythology, you know, about all these other gods and things. And and I guess part of the idea is if you can distance yourself from this is a story to to this is to what is reality because like the Greek the Greek pantheon is sort of its own thing. They're not very the Greek gods are not necessarily figures that you're going to look up to because they have a lot of foibles. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, and, and it's part of classical education. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't understand most of anything done by Greek or Rome without yeah. And there's an interesting concept about interacting with any kind of art or any kind of story in a sense. 
I remember reading about this in a book called Real Spirituality, which is about how Christians interacted, well, among other things, about how Christians interacted with film. And one of the points the author made was that for any story, to a certain extent, you have to accept the world that's being created in you have to accept the story on its own terms before you can come and say, okay, but this is what my worldview says about this sort of thing. Because if you're constantly interrupting the story by saying, but that's not how the world really works, then you're not giving the story or the world that it's creating the time to, to make its case, in a sense, to unfold itself in front of you. And we talked a little bit about that in the how to read a story thing, but I think it applies here too. I think that's a good, really good way to put it because... I guess for me, that's why I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I take the Bible seriously. It says no witchcraft, but I don't mind reading these books or seeing these movies because there's a, there's a chasm between real life and what I'm watching. And then you, then you, you know, you compare, you don't just let it wash over you and you believe everything like, you know, some sort of automatum. Mm -hmm. I suppose the danger comes when you start, and I think people do this, start making the media you absorb become part of your belief system. It's, I mean, the fact that there's Jedi, uh, Jedi religion in Britain. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's taking it way too seriously. You're, it's no longer a story. It's become a myth, uh, like an actual like pagan myth to you. Yeah, and that's not a good thing. I don't think even the creators, I don't think George Lucas was looking to start a new religion. <laughs> he was no. just taking various religious ideas and mixing them up. I think and, the only writer who ever tried to start a religion was L.L. Ron Hubbard. But <laughs> although the guy who wrote, wrote uh, and your sister might disagree with me vehemently here, but perhaps the guy who wrote the Golden Compass in oh, his books. Oh, he he purposely wanted to destroy Christianity. Yeah, yeah. No, and someone wouldn't argue that. It's still the first book, especially. It's still a beautiful written piece of work. Mm. But yeah, the guy's theology is whacked out. <laughs> there was an interesting. I I asked Summer this without my sister who owns a bookstore. We were on vacation, and uh, she was reading this book called The Dove Keeper, which is about. Um, the Jews in Masada in 70, no, like 66 AD, where the Rome, Romans came and, and attacked Masada and Masada and Jerusalem and Masada. And there was a mass suicide and like four people lived out of it. I'm like, oh, that sounds like an interesting, interesting story. So I'm flipping through and there seems to be, I noticed that there were all this mention of magic and spells and stuff. I'm like, this is Israel in 70 AD. This is weird. And I summer about it because I hadn't read it. And she was mentioning that the author said, you know, she did research into, uh, you know, all the kind of superstition stuff the Jews had in ancient times, which is probably true. But it, it made me think, and I asked her, I think there's a lot of literary books that use magic as a plot device. Well, as a, I'm not sure, this might be stepping over my over bounds, but I think kind of a light paganism gives a sense of literariness to modern literature. And I asked her, you know, do you think that's true? And she said, yeah, probably. Um, because she reads, all, she reads all kinds of books. Um, and she gave me this list of, you know, I just, I'm not going to read them. But I said, well, of books you read, what ones have magic in it in a realistic world? Not a fancy world. But they're just magic for, as part of the important part of the story. And she gave me six, seven, eight of them off the top of her head. Well, you know, I could see that in, like, a lot of modern movies, too. I mean, oftentimes, you have an Indian character. They've got some sort of mysticism to them. It's like... It's almost like a cheap way of like making them seem more noble by giving them these sort of magical powers, even though probably the creators themselves wouldn't really believe that they can do this stuff. But it's like, it's the Indian. We got to make him cooler. And when it gives it a veneer, well, I'm not sure it actually does, but I think they think it gives it a veneer of truth by yeah. adding, adding this unexplainable 
mysticism. You know, like something mystical happens and you're just supposed to say, and that's God speaking through us. Yeah. Um, my pet peeve with, and I'm going to make a lot of people mad here, <laughs> um, with Battlestar Galactica, which I know a lot of people really like, and I thought was certainly well done, is that it seemed to me by the end, the writers, they set up this whole thing with the Cylons who had one god and the humans had multiple uh, pantheon of gods and there's and Baltar's like this priest and I thought they were going to do some sort of say something about religion. And at the end, what they said was, God's unknowable and he's some sort of storm and things happen. And you're like, really? That's the lamest, cheapest way of talking about God ever. At least take a stand on something. Um, and, and I'm going to get hate mail now. Ooh, but. <laughs> having never seen Battlestar Galactica and only hearing about all the hype, that I've always enjoyed your rants about it. <laughs> and it is a really, really well done series, but I just, I felt like, I felt like the writers, in general, largely did things for drama above all else. Instead of without, that. without necessarily having anything they wanted to say. And I guess that's a way of writing, to not necessarily, you want to just give all sides and let it stand there. But at some point, you have to say something, don't you? You would rather them inject, you would rather, rather them express their own worldview in some I, way. Or, or even a worldview, besides like... And God's unknowable. And even though we've been pretending that we have two religions that are fighting each other, he's actually part of all of them, but you can't know anything about him. And he sent this angel, even though there's really just kind of a... I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted resolution, not just like, Aha! God did it all! I mean, at least in Lost, which... Okay, God did it all! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot of at least, vague mysticism there. At least they constantly do it the same. Yeah, I mean it's constantly from the from like day one. Jack, don't you think we're here for a reason? It's destiny. We're here on this island. You know, jo John Locke didn't change his tune. John Locke was John Locke all the way through. Yeah, the characters were very consistent in their beliefs and, and, until they had conversions and the conversions and stuff. Yeah, so I felt like at least they were they said something. You can agree with it or not. I mean, I don't agree with their Eastern view. I think it's at least consistent and really well done. And also Babylon 5 is probably has oh. a very consistent worldview oh, yeah. throughout it, too. Yeah, he has a very consistent... You know, James Zinsky doesn't believe in God or magic or anything like that, but most of his characters believe in some sort of the universe. Yeah, the the universe is kind of watching out over us. And and, and it's consistent. And yeah. you're like, okay. So. I don't agree with you, but that's an interesting... And vision. it works. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, artistically, it's good. And right. I think I think that's a, I think for me as a writer and as a, well as a reader and a viewer seeing that this is their artistic vision to me is different than saying oh no this person's actually practicing witchcraft uh -huh. or that I am now going to practice witchcraft now I think as a writer yeah. or a creator you have to look at it more seriously why am I including this in my work mm -hmm. what is the purpose of this am I doing it just because everyone does it am I doing it because I like the idea that I could kill people with his touch i mean <laughs> yeah you have more responsibility as the actual creator of the work as as to what you're doing you do have to take into consideration that people could take your story in different directions so and another thing i think because we touched on it vaguely earlier but i think it's also important that we bring this up because i think it's a very important element of this whole magic discussion is tolkien's idea of what a fantasy what a fairy tale could be in the sense of Maybe it's not so much about a person using magic, but the idea of creating a magical atmosphere, I think, is very invigorating. Honestly, I most of the stuff I write is fantasy because the magical atmosphere is entertaining. It's it's an escape. I mean, it's a good escape. It's escapism the way Tolkien talks about. Mm -hmm. 
And if you don't know what we're talking about as far as Tolkien yeah. says this, make sure, <laughs> make sure you read his essay on fairy stories. It's it's a wonderful essay and has influenced probably a lot of how Nick and I think about a lot of yes. this kind of stuff. Well, and G.K. Chesterton talks about fairy tales being that, you know, you put a bee in the ground and it grows up into a beanstalk. That's perfectly normal. The fact that something happens the same every day in our world is a fantastic part. Is <laughs> is G.K. Chesterton's, you know, a paradoxical way of looking at things. The fantasy has a way of bringing us out of our own kind of mundane lives and seeing something seeing something amazing and special. And in reflection, that often turns itself back into our real world. You see the beauty and mis mysteriousness of Middle Earth, and then you'll look at forests and rivers and streams differently the rest of your life. That Tim, That's exactly what I wanted to say but couldn't find the words for. <laughs> well, that's kind of, you know, when I wrote, Girl Called Snort. That's kind of the atmosphere I have for it. You know, kind of a world that works completely different. It's completely very terrible. Hopefully it says something interesting about real life. You, you change things in a fantasy world in order so that you can talk about them. You separate it from reality so that you can say something about reality. That makes sense. And as, again, Tolkien and Lewis would often say, the Christian story is, in a sense, the ultimate fairy tale about Prince of Light traveling down to the world of man seemingly slain by the forces of darkness, but in a catastrophe, the most unexpected turn of things going to good, he uh, resurrects and winds up casting out sin and casting out fear and the power of darkness. So in a sense, Christianity is really the ultimate myth, ultimate fairy tale, but it's one that's true. And is it, this is completely off topic, I was just thinking, is interest people always trying to say that magic, like the miracles in the Bible didn't happen, but then... Like, everyone reads magic left and right nowadays. <laughs> well, I think... Well, it's a, changing, it's a changing culture. Our age and younger, they eat up fantastical worlds. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what they live in. Realism... Who cares about realism? Yeah, no one cares about realism. I mean, the real life is a mess. I mean, obviously, science and rationality have not answered all of our problems yet. Or and psychology so, or whatever. So the downside, though, then... And I was thinking about this when I was... Something I'm talking about in my project update is that I do think it does land all these fantastical stories while we're fine reading them. I do think the collection of them, not necessarily individual ones, but the collection of them lends itself to a culture open to a new sort of paganism. That's an interesting point. Not, not necessarily an organized paganism, but an idea that spiritual forces are out there in a, in a very vague, non-Christian manner. Mm -hmm. Because people, people, if that's all they absorb... They start thinking that's how the world actually works, unless they're grounded in some sort of reality. And sometimes, I mean, I said earlier, we haven't seen a huge uprising in Wicca, and we really haven't. But it does, I mean, you can't deny that sometimes it does kind of inspire extra interest in that. There were Wicca books in the teen section of mm -hmm. my library at Fort Wayne that um, I knew was there, because especially, you know, like late 90s, beginning of the new millennium, there was a lot of supernatural shows about witches and stuff, not just Harry Potter, but... yeah. Charmed, Sabrina, you know, mm. all that kind of stuff. So it's... I think the problem is more the the mass of it sometimes than the individual instances. Mm -hmm. For, for a, on a cultural level. Now on a personal level, everyone's different. But I said almost nothing. <laughs> one, one other thing I guess I want to say, and Paul in one place, you know, talks substantially about weaker brother, but about food sacrifice to idols. Party says, look, idols are nothing, so you can eat it. It's fine. Then he says, but if someone else thinks the idols are something, don't eat it. And then late in some other book or later than that, he's like, we all know that idols are really have demons behind them. 
And you're like, but what are you talking about? And I think it's really one of those things, if you see that the meat, if the ceremony isn't important, you need the meat. You know, if you see the magic's this other fictional world, then you just take it as that. But if it starts, you start thinking that the fictional world says something about how the real world works or how you wish it would work. Yeah. Then that could be and it, bells. it may not even necessitate a complete break from that thing. It's not like you necessarily, I mean, you may, you may decide that you should never read this sort of thing again if that's become, if that's affecting you. But it could also be a matter of, I'm just going to not partake in this for a certain period of time. And then we'll see what it's like down the road. And I really do think where each individual person, especially Christians come down on this, might be different for different people. How much they can, you know, how much you can separate it, what kind of culture they live in. I mean, living down in Brazil, where there's a lot more animism and that sort of stuff, it's taken much more seriously. You know, it affects that culture much more than living in some highly secularized place. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I have. That That's makes, all we've got. No, <laughs> no that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm not sure where to summarize all this, <laughs> except consider, I would say, consider each case as you come across it. And it may not be an issue for it, but don't discount those who say it is. I know there's some who would be on the other side of saying, oh, Harry Potter is fine. You guys are just But being... it might not be fine for the other person. Yeah. And, and also examine your own motives, especially as the creator. Yeah. Why are you doing, you know, why are you adding magic? Why are you doing this sort of supernatural thing. I think that's a really good way to wrap that up. So with that said, send all your hate mail to Nick. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, well, uh, please leave some comments about this. this. Like we said, is a big issue. So if you have some thoughts, let us know, leave us a comment about it. And with that said, we'll move on to soundtrack. Alright, for a soundtrack today, I I was tempted to do a Final Fantasy VIII orchestrated when this this uh, kind of dark sorcerer sorceress music. But I thought I've done Final Fantasy before. So I decided to take instead a more lighter route. When the Chronicles of Narnia Lion Witch and Wardrobe movie came out, they had a CD with music inspired by the movie come out, and my wife bought it. I haven't hardly listened to it. But there's one song in there called Turkish Delight by the David Crowder Band, which is just lots of fun. And I think one of those uh, aspects of Narnia that it's magical, but it's also saying something about the human condition. But the song's actually not that serious at all. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, but it, it, it's sung in such a peppy, ska sort of manner that I hope you really enjoy it. It's a short song, and I can't play it all because... And I, I hate abridging songs, but we gotta follow copyright, so this will be a short one. But enjoy Turkish Delight. Turkish delight. Turkish delight. 
Hope you enjoyed. Next, let's do Project Update. So, Tim and I have both been um, working on various things. I saw that... Uh, you're, you're working on stuff? I'm working on stuff. Okay, <laughs> no, we're going to actually We'll actually update today. Yeah. Um, a lot of this stuff... Well, yours isn't in progress, but Tim, actually, you can now watch Piece of Cake, correct? Oh, yes, that's true. Um, I just linked it on Facebook, so maybe I should put a link on the main page somehow. I think you should, yeah. Yeah, it's on... Piece of Cake is now available on the Regents Student Film website. It's called Real Good, R-E-E-L, as in a real of film, good.tv. And just go there, and then you can search for Piece of Cake. But I'll, I'll probably put a, a link in the show notes. So that's available online now, so that's exciting. And then there's another project that I was involved in that we'll talk about after Nick talks about. So I have various things going on, but the two important ones are I'm working on a collect... I wrote... I finally hit 50 flash fictions on my website, worksofnick.com. And I thought, I'm going to collect them all into a book, and I'm about ready to start teaching 8th grade, 6th, 7th, 8th grade writing again next week. No, two weeks. I got a week and a half. Okay. But... <laughs> They're, they're always raising money for D.C., so I think I'm going to put the book together, and then we'll sell it as a fundraiser for them to go to D.C., and we'll tell you when it's out, so if you want to, you know, either A, have a physical copy of what's on my website, or B, donate to uh, send 8th graders to D.C. fund. It should be fun, and I'm adding little uh, DVD extras, like little notes about like how I came up with this idea, or what it's inspired by. Or Now, how many of those 50 stories are from the Final Fantasy X soundtrack? Probably at least 40 of them. Okay, because what you would do is you'd listen to a particular track on the soundtrack, and then try to write a story yeah, about it. Yeah, if I've never mentioned here before, the Flash Fiction I wrote almost completely as challenge. It was like three of them I wrote, because I had to write, and most of the rest of them were, I've listened to pieces of music over and over until I found a plot in it. Which sometimes took a long time. I mean, a few of them were written for that. I On Facebook, I used to have a flash fiction contest, and they'd have different prompts. Not musical prompts, but other types of prompts. So, they're, they're stories that I basically wrote because I had to, quote-unquote. And it was, a, it was a fun challenge, and I, I hope to go back to it, but I'm taking a break from it for my second update. <laughs> this is the one that makes uh, other people happy. Is that I'm going to return to writing The Adventures of Strin Fred. Yay! Which I'm going to make book one available again, because right now it's on print. It has an e-book and as a print book. Okay. On Lulu? Um, probably on Lulu, so it'll be relatively cheap compared okay. to what it was. It was like, originally it was like 20-some bucks. If you don't know what Lulu is, it's a website that people can self-publish books, and Nick has used that several times now. Yes, I, I don't know. I enjoy self-publishing things I don't think will get published, and Stern Fred, I'm just doing it because I want to get it done. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, for those of you who are waiting on the Squire, that is not going to be one that will be published on Lulu because we want him to actually publish yeah. that for real. I've been, I've, I am, I'm being harassed multiple times, and I will get agent letters sent out at some point. The problem is, I tend to want to write more than I want to get an agent. Yeah. So anyway, so Strange Fred Book Three will be published on my website. I'm still working out details on do I do I start at the beginning? Because I already wrote the first third. 
and a few people have read that, and how often to publish it, and da 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 da. And I think I need a new name for it. I don't think Adventure Str- uh, and Fred is going to work. Oh, really? Well, well, that's always been the surtitle of the books. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean, though. I, of, the, of, this, of the whole series. Of the whole series. Because I came up with that back when I was just spitballing it. When I was just uh-huh. making stuff up off the top of my head. Now I actually have a plan. Uh-huh. So I figured out I should probably have a title that applies a little more. Because Strand and Fred, while important, are not the only things going on there. Yeah, there's a lot of characters <laughs> running around. So, so hopefully in the next few months, you'll see some books out. I'll say it here. Some books out and then start publishing things on the website, and I will work faster if I feel like people are reading. That's how I get things. That's why Natasha said, hey, go publish on your website, because then you actually work on it. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm actually pretty excited about it. I had to get a lot of other stuff out of my system, but now I'm at a point where this book has been sitting unfinished for years. Long time. It was the book that you, well, the first book was the one that was your senior project in college. Yeah. You've been graduated for... I've been married for almost eight, so... You've been out of college for almost nine? Probably, yeah. So, yeah, an old project, An old project. And when I... I feel like maybe I can actually give it... Do it decently now. Is there any chance you would ever write prequel story? Because, I mean, The Adventures of Strin and Fred is kind of a catchy title. It is. I could see doing little short story things. Well, I that's kind of what I mean. Yeah, I, I, could do, I could do extra stories. I can see doing that, filling in the corners. Of just those two... Or anyone in the kingdom. It's like when I wrote Girl Called Snort. I enjoyed writing the little side stories. Oh, yeah. It made me, you know, it challenged me. And I sometimes I come up with stories that, like, hurt people's heads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, so that, that's, I'm really excited about it. And it'll probably be another month until anything official gets done. Be that one, get this flash fiction thing done. And I'll start teaching and da, 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 da. But look for updates on both of those at worksofnick.com. Yeah, and I'll probably say them here, too. Yeah, yep. of course. And then your your big announcement. Oh, yeah. Um, a while back, man, this was, was it 2007? I think it was 2007. It? When we first started this, we, we went to Story, Indiana. Yeah, a group of, of our writer friends. We went to Story, Indiana. Most, of, us, most of which have been on this podcast. That's true. Well, two of them. We two, got two more to get. Yeah, that's true. And that's, well, of the people, oh, Nick's wife, Natasha, uh, Nathan Marchand, who wrote Pandora's Box, who we interviewed a while back, and Laura Fisher, who is on um, much more recently doing talking about fandom, were all there, along with our friend Aaron Brosman, who we need to have an excuse to get him on someday. Comic books or something. Something, yeah. He works at a comic store, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, well, so. comics, games. Okay, we can so. find out where he's going to get him on. Yeah. But anyway, we did. We got together and we decided we wanted to do some sort of project and we started this... Oh, and also David was David there. David was there, yep. Yeah, David Miller. Um, but we started this Pulp Fiction project where one person would write kind of pulpy type story, usually some sort of adventure thing. For instance, I I started a spy one with my old character McCracken. I started a, a barbarian story with Zorzum. Yeah, which is quite different um, for me. For yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> and th- and another one of these stories was a monster story, which Nathan Marchand, as we said, our Pandora's Box author friend, he started that one. And then, so someone would write the first third of the story, then someone else would write the middle, and then a third person would write the conclusion. And they were supposed to be about thirty thousand words at the end. Yeah. And it, it was a really fun experiment, I and mean, it was very interesting. I mean, obviously the first part was the most fun, because you got to set everything up and get things spinning, but then just kind of leave it hanging for someone else to deal with. And the middle was interesting, because you had to keep the plate spinning while not actually resolving anything. But, <laughs> but the conclusion was perhaps the most difficult, because you actually had to end it. And you had to write the conclusion of this. Yeah, the monster story, we Nathan just recently, because we finished... 
we finished all the stories in uh, 2008. The project took us about a year. And we sat on them for a while. Then Nathan recently decided to self-publish the monster story, which is called Destroyer. And he wrote, as I said, the first part, the, the first third. Then Natasha, Nick's wife, wrote the middle, the second portion. A love story. <laughs> she introduced a love story, which was, yeah, it was nice. It, it, was, it was nice, yeah. And I wrote the conclusion. And I think it all came together pretty well. Um, it was one of the stronger... Uh... Finishes, I think. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, most most of the ones that got finished were good. Yeah, the, some of them didn't get completely finished. But I think I think they all finished pretty well. That's true, they did. Yeah. So the book is called Destroyer. It's now also available. It's available on... We'll have to put a link in the show notes yeah. um, because it's available on lulu.com as well as smashwords.com as an ebook. And uh, it's pretty cheap. I think we have them at minimum price, so they're both pretty cheap buys. So it's... Uh, Pretty cheap little pickup if you in the mood for a Godzilla-type King Kong slash Cloverfield slash Hint of Frankenstein. Pick it up. I think you'll find it a fun read. In fact, we're going to give you a little preview of it right now in A Bit of Story. And so for a bit of story, we've got Nathan Marchand, who will be reading a portion from the beginning of the book. I think this is going to have something to do with how the, the monster first goes berserk. Just a, a real quick setup of, the, of this portion of the book. The United States is in this big world war against the Russian-Chinese alliance, and they've developed this giant monster dragon thing out of, uh, basically out of cybernetics and the carcass of a frozen dinosaur that they... That yeah, so they used genetics from the dinosaur and yeah. made it a cyborg. And it made a giant cyborg monster thing, and it's been attacking Moscow, is I believe where this, where this excerpt takes place. So, this is a, an excerpt from Destroyer. Enjoy. Destroyer, Chapter 6, Berserk, read by Nathan Marchand. Rex-1 took flight. The wind from its wings fanned the flames consuming the base. The Nighthawk followed the Cyber Monster to stay in the teepee helmet's range. Thousands of Muscovites scurried in panic below as Rex-1's shadow passed over them. Streets were clogged with traffic. Police car drones scrambled through the crowds trying to maintain a semblance of order. They were failing. Automated fire trucks hurried to burning buildings to snuff flames, but panicked crowds either hampered them or started more fires. Chaos reigned supreme. The Kremlin quickly approached. Yamamoto, land Rex 1 in Red Square, ordered gun. With a thought, Tomo relayed the commands. Rex 1 swooped down and grinded to a halt, leaving a 50 foot scrape on the street. The pilots made the Nighthawk circle around the square always keeping Rex-1 in view. Dr. Steiner expelled a long sigh and wiped sweat from his forehead. The Kremlin seemed empty. Tomo had Rex-1 make an infrared scan of the building. Rainbow-colored blips could be seen throughout it. They were the Coalition's European delegates, all trapped inside. The suddenness of the attack, the panic in the streets, and Rex-1's arrival on the square likely prevented them from retreating. Target acquired, reported Tomo. Ava never looked up. Terminate, commanded Gunn. Tomo closed his eyes to relay the order. Rex-1's mouth opened. Boom! 
A screaming missile exploded against Rex One's back, pieces of burning skin flying in all directions. The cyborg roared in pain, and Tomo cursed in surprise. Everyone grabbed their armrests for dear life. A second missile was blocked when the Cyber Dragon's energy shields activated. The pilots started evasive maneuvers as low-flying fighter planes roared over them. What was that? Gunn demanded to know. Neomig shadows, said O'Brien. They're stealth fighters. I don't care if they're Santa's reindeer. Take them out, barked Gunn. I'm working on it, shouted Tomo. The shadows, all twelve of them, circled around for another strike. Rex One's horns glowed, its eyes flared. The shadows fired missiles. They all crashed into the cyborg's shields. Cloaked in smoke, Rex One roared in defiance and blasted lasers. The shadows scattered like frightened bees, but not before three exploded. Rex One's gaze followed the planes to acquire a new target lock, but without warning, plasma shells buffeted its shield from below. It spun and saw a battle group of coalition super tanks emerging from a huge underground bunker near the Kremlin. No doubt, it was the leader's personal defense force. Rex One growled as its eyes glowed again and fired. The lasers sliced two tanks in half while the others scattered. A salvo of missiles exploded on Rex One's back. It looked over its shoulder and roared at the shadows, only to be interrupted by a barrage of plasma shells from the super tanks below. It roared even louder, enraged. You're pissing me off, shouted Tomo. He grimaced as he sent more telepathic commands to Rex One. Ava grabbed Dr. Steiner's shoulder. Dad! He turned to her. What is it? There was a huge spike in autonomous brain activity when Rex One was hit by the missiles when its shield was down. Dr. Steiner's face melted into confusion. How's that possible? Our test said that would be dormant except for essential functions. This was a bad time for problems. How could they convince Gunn to call off a key mission for a random anomaly? No, it'd have to wait. They watched as Rex One lunged at the super tanks with a gaping mouth. It clutched one, twice the size of a normal tank, in its jaws. Its teeth dug into the thick titanium armor, crushing it like a can. Rex One thrashed it around a few times, then released its grip. The compacted tank flew into a building half a mile away. Rex One squatted, grabbing another tank in its teeth and clutched one in each hand. It clapped those two like an angry child breaking its toys. Then it tossed what was left of all three on the remaining tanks. Just then, a red light flashed on Ava's monitor. Dad, there's another spike, and the shield collapsed. There was no time to ask why. Dr. Steiner swiveled his chair to see Gunn. Get Rex One out of there! Too late. Before Gunn could argue, they heard Rex One bellow in pain on their monitors. They redirected their attentions. Neomigs flew over Rex One as missiles exploded against its back. More skin flew off in flaming clumps. Three surviving super tanks seized the opportunity and fired. Plasma shells smashed into the cyborg's chest, ripping into its grafted skin. Rex One's eyes and horns glowed as it prepared to retaliate, but it was interrupted by another salvo of missiles fired by the shadows. Finally, Rex One threw back its head and arms and bellowed a primal shriek. A warning screen flashed on Ava's computer, and a siren-like alarm blared. Her eyes widened in terror. Readings have spiked through the roof! Dr. Steiner jumped to his feet, but before he could yell abort, Tomo was screaming. Lightning-like electricity danced down the wires connecting the TP helmet to the Nighthawk's computers. The flyboy's eyes were wide and white, his facial muscles contorted into the face of a terrified banshee as the power surge electrified him. A white aura enveloped him. 
Get the helmet off before it fries his brain, yelled Dr. Steiner, pointing at Tomo. Daniels jumped from his chair, fighting turbulence, and grabbed the helmet. Even with gloves on, his hands burned. He grated a cry through his teeth and ripped the helmet off Tomo's head. They both collapsed on the floor. Smoke emanated from the helmet as it dangled from the wires. Dr. Steiner immediately looked out the windshield. More missiles and plasma shells hit Rex-1. Screaming in agony, the cyborg's legs buckled, and it fell against the Kremlin. The building crumbled, burying the cyber beast under tons of rubble. A thick black cloud of dust flew into the air. Silence. Dr. Steiner's jaw dropped. No, it can't be. Suddenly, two red lights flared in the dust cloud, glaring at the Nighthawk. Laser beams fired. Instantly, the Nighthawk spiraled out of control. The screams of sirens and crew members mingled in Dr. Steiner's ears as inertia and vertigo slammed him against the wall. He forced his eyes open and watched through the windshield as the Moscow streets rushed up to them. There was an ear-shattering crash. Everything went black. And again, that book is available on lulu.com and smashwords.com, and we'll have an exact link for you in the show notes. And finally, for our last segment for today, let's do a quick... Crackpot's Corner. Um, I'm not sure actually what to talk about with Crackpot's Corner. <laughs> I, 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 th- I thought I had a, a passing idea. Now, if, if you're not familiar with that segment, this is where Nick and I usually spin out a crazy idea that we've had that may never happen, but it's always kind of fun to talk about these things. Here's one I had way back when. Nintendo Power, back in the day. Like, early Nintendo Power. When Final Fantasy number 1 came out, there was a contest where you could win to be part of, like, one of four people who go to this island and do, like, a live-action Final Fantasy art oh. thing. Oh, man, that'd be a blast. And this was back when, you know, role-playing games were, like, you know, there's only been, like, Dragon Warrior, now there's this Final Fantasy game. And I remember spending lots of time with paper and stuff, figuring out how I could, how I could set one up at my house. Like, I was going to have the kitchen be where you buy stuff, and I was going to have monsters out in the forest, and they were going to be played by, like, my siblings or whatever. And I, I, I spent a long time writing, you know, figuring out how, how would you make this work and make it fun, and before I knew anything about LARP or role-playing games. Or, uh-huh. So I wouldn't do that now. So that's it's a, an old, like, 12-year-old crackpot's corner. Well, that actually reminds me of one that kind of similar one that I had, actually. Not as in terms of a fantasy role-playing sort of thing, but I had this idea of setting up a treasure hunt around the house, around our house, because we live out in the country, and so we have a lot of territory you could cover. And so I, I like this idea of setting up this thing with, like, you know, hidden clues, hidden behind paintings and stuff, and then, had like, one part would be just, like, the first half of a code, and you have to find follow the, the trail to find the second half. And then the other thing was like, I would entrust my family members with these secrets that they would have, that people who visited the house would have to pry out of them somehow in order to discover the That's secrets. That's awesome. <laughs> actually, I think there's still actually a painting at, a, at our house somewhere that has half of a code taped to the back of it <laughs> that has never been taken down. That's fabulous. <laughs> For some reason, both those remind me and they've, they've now done it with Harry Potter, speaking of magic. Mm-hmm. But I remember back in the day thinking they need to come up with some um, some theme park, Star Wars, where you could walk through like Ewok Forest and Hoth and 
Make oh, it man. very realistic, the cantina. And oh, that'd be awesome. I always thought that'd be great. Now they've done it for Harry Potter. But you're like, no, but why not Star Wars? <laughs> no, I mean, I think the Harry Potter thing would probably be really cool to go to. But Although if you really were to make authentic, some of those environments might be kind of uncomfortable to be in. That's true. I mean, you have to really crank up the heat in Tatooine and really freeze everyone I could just see it. Like, there's just so much fun you could have. And you could have, you know... Your monorail or whatever, like in this one, could be a shuttle taking you from one planet to the next. And uh-huh. I don't know. I remember daydreaming about that too. Back in back in middle school, when I knew like the name of every creature in the cantina and every creature in Jabba's palace. I think there should be a uh, trash compactor ride where it, that would... where where it looks like the walls are about to close <laughs> in on you. Said, that'd be a great one of those disaster rides. Yeah, yeah. that'd be fabulous. <laughs> I, you could have lots of you know like you could they'd have little imitation tauntaun bellies you could crawl into <laughs> the perfect photo op kind of thing yeah exactly <laughs> for sin to have to be like Nickelodeon you have to have like some sort of guts in there they have to crawl in through and get them all messy yeah, yeah you could come up with all kinds of fun stuff man you build your own lightsaber seriously George Lucas stop making cartoons and go make a theme park <laughs> Just open Skywalker Ranch, you know. There you go. <laughs> I, th- I think that I think that would be pretty much completely awesome. Now, one of these days, some Hollywood mogul is finally going to listen in our crackpots corner, and they're going to make a million dollars. And then we'll be like, "But it was our idea," and we'll sue them. They say, "No, it was our idea." And then yeah, yeah. there it goes. Yeah, ideas are dime a dozen. That's true. <laughs> Well, that was short, but I think that was that short and sweet. Yes, a lot of good ideas there. Yeah. So I guess that means the only thing left is our contact info, the most thrilling part of our podcast. <laughs> Thrill as you hear that our website address is derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Chill in disbelief at the fact that no one has ever sent us an email at derailtrains at gmail.com. Scream in horror as you realize that's all that we have to say about our contact info. Except for the fact that you can also <laughs> subscribe to us on iTunes. True. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're obviously off our, completely off our rocker now. So, but um, <laughs> if you have anything interesting to say about Literally, magic, yeah. our own sanity, um, feel free to leave it in the comments. And also, we're, we're always taking ideas for uh, new topics. Yeah, definitely. We, we, have a, we have a list of them, but sometimes they're not exciting to us. So yeah. give us a new one. Yeah, we have an idea for yeah. Let's do, let's do talk about games for a change. Exactly. So, sure. so we, we are here to serve you. Exactly. And to talk to ourselves. <laughs> a little bit of each. <laughs> All so, right. Final soundtrack, Tim. To close us out, I've got a very kind of ethereal sa- soundtrack for you. I was looking for a very magical thing, and there's a lot of games that I hope to play someday, and one of those is Secret of Mana from Super Nintendo. Great game. If only for the fact that so many good remixes have come out of this game. You must have some great music. Oh, the, the music is awesome, and the game's like Zelda. Yeah. In, in sort of like awesomeness. Uh, see, I'm going to have to try. There's so many games out there. But you should definitely enjoy this game. This is by The Wingless. It's called Aphrodite Oceanus. Very magical in the good kind of magical atmosphere way. So I hope you enjoy. And we will see you next time. This has been Tim. This has been Nick. Adios. Bye.
Magic Missile. Why are you casting Magic Missile? There's nothing to attack here. I cast it at the darkness. <laughs> <laughs>